Hello, 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 everybody. Lovely to see you. I hope you're doing all right. Um, wasn't Sarah just amazing there? I think she's just given voice to so many people across our church family, so I'm deeply grateful to you. Well, as um, Phil mentioned, this morning marks the last in our uh, epic series on Love Matters. Uh, we spent the past three months looking at the subjects of love, sex, relationships, and whilst we haven't been able to cover everything and we want to sort of come to other things at another point, there will, by the end of this morning, have been 12 talks, four interviews, three focus evenings, and various book recommendations along the way. We've looked at words from the Bible, we've examined what our society is saying, and you've heard words that would make your mother blush. It's reached the point where our teenagers are desperately pleading with us, would you please, please stop talking about sex? Um, So the good news is today marks the end of it. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and say to you, I'm so glad we're landing the series, it was beginning to get awkward. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you, say that to them. Brilliant. Great. So my job this morning is to try and draw some of the strings together as we conclude uh, the series and to try and live live out some points of application, really. Look at how do we put hands and feet to some of the things that we've been hearing these past three months. How do I apply all this stuff to my life? Uh, But if you've missed the odd week, here's just a few brief snapshots of some of the things that we've been covering Uh, Firstly, we started out by recognizing that we live in a highly sexualized world. Everything from cars to cameras, uh, from uh, chocolate to shampoo, we use sex in order to promote and advertise. And yet society is shifting, polarizing and shifting. Plate tectonics are moving, even in the course of a single generation. Attitudes towards sex and sexuality are changing. Um, I came across this article in one of the broadsheets last month, just in June, by this lady, Annalisa Barbieri, and she writes this. A couple of weeks ago, I got on the London Underground. I took the one available seat next to a middle-aged man and huddled my children around me. I looked lazily to my side, my eyes glazing over in the way that a lifetime of travelling on public transport teaches you, seeing all but nothing. And without even wanting to take it in, without the option to make that choice, I saw that the man next to me was watching porn on his phone. I shouldn't have been too surprised, because it's not the first time it's happened to me, it's the fourth. Twice previously, it's happened on the tube, and once on a mainline train, where a man was watching a porn film on his iPad, with the screen tilted towards the aisle. That's an indication of the world that we live in now. And what we've learned in this series is that everyone will have a view on that. Everyone has a sexual ethic. Everyone has a moral standard. Perhaps going into this series, we were tempted to think that we shouldn't be able to share our views in case we were typecast as the killjoy Christians or being repressive or that kind of thing. But what we've actually learned is that everyone draws the line somewhere. And it's okay for you to draw a line too. It's okay for you to have an opinion. Of course, we're not, we're not wanting to expect people who don't believe in God to then follow God and follow his, his, his views and his, his values, but it doesn't mean to say that you can't speak up and that you can't have a voice too. In the shifting sands of public opinion, we've got some solid ground, haven't we? We've seen that the Bible is God's blueprint for our lives. We don't have the same issues necessarily as the world around us because the Father has given us everything we need in this book 
for life and godliness. If you want to have a successful, joy-filled, abundant life, it's all in here. It's so that we can make the most of our one and only life. If you like, the Bible is our manual to do life. Um, We're trying to currently renovate my son Zachary's uh, bedroom at the moment. So Ems and I, a few weeks ago, went to a certain Scandinavian furniture store. Um, I'm not going to name it, just in case the lawyers are listening. And um, we bought a wardrobe. I brought it home, and um, uh, it came with an instruction manual once we opened it up. And I thought to myself, I'm building a cabin at the end of my garden. I think I can put up a wardrobe. I'll freestyle it. So I threw the, threw the instruction manual to one side and then began to assemble the wardrobe uh, on the floor. Everything seemed to go very well. We had one bit to, that was still to go on, which is like a little flimsy hardboard thing for the back. And I thought, what we'll do is we'll put that on, on once it's up. So Nora and I then lifted the wardrobe up into position in the alcove, uh, got it in place, and then immediately there was a the sound of snapping wood and cracking. And then essentially the whole wardrobe reverted back to its natural flat pack state <laughs> with chip, bits of chipboard everywhere and dust flying everywhere. And I thought to myself, oh, no, I've got another thing to explain to Emma. Uh, it turns out that that flimsy hardboard th- thing that goes on the back, that's actually essential for the structural integrity of the wardrobe. I learned that when I read the instructions later on. Um, <laughs> The point is, if you want your life to go well, the Bible is your manual for life. Proverbs 4 says this, that God's words are life to those who find them. Not just rules and regulations, but life to you. Romans 15 says this, that we've been given the scriptures that we might have hope. If you need a hope in your life, they're found in the manual that God has given you. In the pages of this book, we learn what love is. We learn how to know God, and we learn how we can relate to other people and have meaningful relationships with them. And of course, it's in the pages of this book that we encounter Jesus. When it comes to the issues around sex and relationships, or anything else for that matter, we've seen that Jesus is 100% truth and 100% love. He led a fully satisfied single life. Loving others, and the Bible says knowing more joy than anybody else around him. He set the bar radically high for sexual purity, saying that even if you looked at someone lustfully, it was the same as committing adultery. And yet, refusing to judge people and defending innocent victims from the religious bullies of the day. We've seen that knowing Jesus and relationship with him is therefore worth any sacrifice. You heard Sarah refer to that just now, but in previous weeks, many of us will remember hearing Jeanette share her story and her decision to remain celibate in order to honor Jesus with her life. And then as we connect and relate to him, it's from that place that we then get the love that we need to share with those around us. It's that that then enables us to be the king's arms to the world around us. Because we've encountered that perfect love and acceptance we're now in the position to embrace everyone. 26 years ago, uh, my wife Emma um, read a story about a preacher suffering from jet lag. Um, He landed in Hawaii, and uh, he's due to speak at a conference, but he couldn't sleep because of the jet lag. So at 3.30 a.m., he finds himself in an all-night diner um, having a a rough cup of coffee and a donut. And as he sat there, um, a group of prostitutes come in at the end of the evening, And uh, they are having a conversation, and he overhears one of the prostitutes, a lady called Agnes, 
saying how she's never had a birthday party. And as soon as he hears those words, he knows that he has to do something about it. So he talks to the cafe owner, and um, they agree that the next night, she comes in every night, the next night, they'll throw a surprise birthday party for her. He gets decorations and decorates the cafe. They get organized a cake, and a whole load of people turn up. Agnes walks in to the cafe, 3.30 in the, in the middle of the night, and then suddenly there's this surprise birthday party with everybody singing happy birthday to her. The guy who owns the cafe says, says to the preacher, what kind of preacher are you? What sort of church do you lead? And he says it's the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> That's the kind of church I lead, which is a great line. My wife, Emma, reads that story and realizes she needs to do something for the people on the streets of Bedford. So they launch something called the FNM, the Friday Night Meeting. Not the most imaginative title in the world, but that's what it is. It does what it says on the tin. And for the past 25 years, the Friday Night Meeting has offered food and friendship to the people of Bedford. People who are lonely or on the streets or just need some community. It's a snapshot of how we're meant to embrace the world around us. But of course, that's not for everyone. Not everybody can do that. So each one of us needs to know, how do I put hands and feet to this? How can I live this out? So I've got one overriding message to leave us with that applies to all of us, every single one of us, as we finish this series in terms of how we can live it out. And it comes out of this. It comes out of an article um, that was produced in 2014. It just illustrates what I'm trying to say. It's an article by Time magazine. And uh, they ran an article on the second most researched area on the internet. So no prizes for guessing what was number one. It was pornography and sex. But I wonder if you could guess what the second most researched area was on the internet. It was actually the area of genealogy, family history, knowing your family tree. They write this in the article. This is the second most visited category of websites after pornography. It is a billion-dollar industry that has spawned profitable websites, television shows, scores of books, and with the advent of the over-the-counter genetic test kits, a cottage industry in DNA ancestry testing. You see, we started out this series thinking it was all about sex and sexual practices. But what we find is that the strongest desires of the human heart are not actually for sexual gratification, but the deeper hunger for family. The world around us presents us with the idea that what we need is more sexual freedom when the truth is what we need is not more freedom but more connection, more belonging, feeling like we are part of something, that we belong somewhere and to some people. You see, people start out on the internet searching for thrills but they end up really searching for family. That's where the true hunger is. I mean, look at the things that we're drawn to. Look at the things that, even on TV, television sells us the fantasy of what we would long for. I've got up on the screen here just some of the most successful comedy shows of recent years. What's the common denominator as you look at those? And some of them would be very familiar to you. The common denominator is this. The most successful, longest-running, most deeply loved series are all about disparate, even dysfunctional people sharing their lives together. 
aren't they? They're, they're all about being in and out of one another's homes. They're about falling out and arguing and then making up and forgiving again. They're about laughing and crying and never seeming to turn up at work. They're all of these sorts of things. They're about sharing the journey of life together, those series, aren't they? That's the fantasy world that Hollywood sells us. Sadly, the truth is somewhat different. The truth is that the real number of people living alone in the UK has risen by 53% in the past 20 years, and it's set to rise by another 3 million people in the next 20 years. Our interconnected high-speed world is starting to look increasingly isolated, isn't it? So the way we put hands and feet to the messages we've heard about is not by waving placards or ranting on social media as a keyboard warrior about the state of the world. It's actually by creating family. Sometimes people need to see the gospel before they hear the gospel. That was true for me. I became a Christian age 13. Uh, my parents uh, were interested in faith, so that we went around lots of different Church of England churches just to see. Uh, praise God for the Church of England. There were some great churches. But there was, was one we landed I've got a picture of the building up here, St. Mary's Church in Camberley. And uh, I was a 13-year-old lad. And my experience of going around um, these different churches had been that uh, they would have the service, and to be honest, I can't remember anything really much about them. I was a bit bored in many of them. But then what would happen at the end of the service, the format was that the vicar would go to the door and then shake hands with everybody as they left the building. I thought the vicar was rushing there to slow people down and sort of head them off at the pass. That was my interpretation of events, because people seemed in a real hurry to get out. Except we went to this one church, um, St. Mary's, and instead of everybody making a beeline for the door, they seemed to stop and talk to one another, and some of them seemed to know each other and even seemed pleased to see one another. And there were this real mix of people and ages. And suddenly I remember sitting there, people watching, and as I realized, I, I stood, sat there and I thought, these people have got something. I, I don't know what it is, but these people have got something, and I want what they've got. And that's how my journey of faith began, because I needed to see something before I was ready to hear about it. I want to suggest to you that in the days ahead, some people are going to need to make very radical decisions to follow Jesus. If someone leaves the adult entertainment industry or a same-sex lifestyle or leaves a Muslim background or decides to leave an ungodly relationship, as they step out of that, they're going to need to step into something. And as a 13-year-old lad, I was able to step into family. My question is, will they be able to step into this family? Or are we going to be too busy with our own lives? The question is, are we going to be here for them? Or have we got our own little agenda that we're working on? Of course, I realize that family isn't always a positive word for everybody, and some of us have come from very dysfunctional, controlling families. But my point is, it's a word that needs to be redeemed, not abandoned, because it's right throughout the Bible. God says that he he's, wants to gather people from this whole family in heaven and on earth. In Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 2, it says this, you are members of God's family. Romans 12 says, love one another with brotherly affection. It's deep, it's personal, it's intimate. And as a result, we're meant to demonstrate that. Here, Bedford, Milton Keynes, wherever you're from, we're meant to demonstrate that to the world around us. And there should be some characteristics of God's earthly family here. There should be some family traits, if you like. As we finish our series, I just want to suggest to you some of the family traits that you and I are called to exhibit, not just here, but to the world around us. The first one is this, is that 
God's family is characterized by a different definition of wealth to the world around us. You know, ultimately, how you define wealth will define your life. So if you define wealth as having lots of money, well, then your life will be about trying to get richer by having more and more money. If you think true riches are about having amazing, incredible experiences, then you will probably want to travel the world having adrenaline-fueled adventures. But if you think relationships are what life is all about, then you'll spend your life investing in those. And as we read Scripture, we see that the currency for Christians is relationships. Look at the way the Apostle Paul describes his friends in Philippi as his riches. He says this in Philippians 4, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Paul doesn't have a pension plan. The Philippians and those in Macedonia, those are his treasures. Those people are where he's invested his life. So here's my rough guide to riches. If I want to know how much money I've got, I'll look at my bank account. If I want to know the quality of my relationships, how many true friends I have, then I apply the 3 a.m. test. And it's this. Um, I think to myself, I run a scenario, maybe the car is broken down by the side of the road, or I suddenly need to be rushed into hospital. I think to myself, how many people could I phone at 3 a.m. who would come and help me? And the number of people on the list is how rich I am. So I sat down this week and did this. I reckon I've got about 35, 35 people. I wasn't sure about the last 10. Um, So this week I'm going to be conducting a survey. (laughs) If you receive a phone call from me at 3 a.m., it's just me finding out whether or not you would actually come and help me, all right? So let me ask you, who could you phone? How many people would be on the 3 a.m. list for you? Because that's the definition in some senses of how relationally wealthy you are. In financial terms, I'm not poor, but I'm not particularly rich either. But in relational terms, I am a seriously wealthy man. And my heart's desire is that you find your fortune here too, just like I have. You see, we're meant to do this life together. The second characteristic, family trait, relates to money as well, is this. Godly families use money to love people. Some people use people in order to love money, but we're not called to be like that. We're called to use money in order to love people well. We read in Acts 2 that they sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. Our money and possessions are tools to loving people really well. Emma and I made the decision when we first got married that we didn't want to own anything that we weren't willing to lend to somebody else, we weren't willing to share with others. And that's been so helpful to us over the years. It's made us a lot more relaxed about all of our possessions. Because if I hold on to some things tightly, then the danger is that that's going to become an idol in my life. Uh, So to give you an example, a few weeks ago, a a young lad from church came up to me, ashen-faced, me and Emma, he was was white as a sheet, terribly mortified. He said, I've, I've just opened the car, my car door onto your car door and I've dented your car door. I'm so, so sorry. Please, would you come out and I can show you where it's dented? And we said, no, we don't even want to go outside. We said, does that dent match the other dents? I imagine it does. And like, that's, 
you know. And he just he couldn't compute. But like to us, it's a dent in a car that's already dented. It really, really doesn't matter. Uh, now, I'm not pretending it's always easy to live like that. Um, I remember about six years ago, I lent my Black & Decker drill to somebody, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was. The Black & Decker drill is yet to return to me. Um, another time, I remember I had a, a car that for me was quite nice. It was the time when the turbo diesels were just coming out, and I had a, a Fiat Tipo turbo diesel that Theo put, put me onto, and it was nice and quite fast. And I lent it to somebody, and they came back and handed me the keys, and they, they said to me, um, that, the car goes quite fast, doesn't it? She said... I was going down the motorway, I looked down at the speedo, and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm doing over 100 already. I thought to myself, I said, yeah, great, that's, that's fascinating. Does it really do that? That's great. But most of the time, it's enabled me to live light and free. We've done other simple things, like we give um, 10% uh, of our income towards the church, we give a small amount uh, to the King's Arms Project, but then we have a, a, a generosity budget line which means that every month we've got a bit of money that we can just give to whoever we feel prompted to give to. And uh, it's just a way of us being able to put hands and feet to using money to love people. You might want to start there. It might even be just as simple as three pounds a month that you could treat somebody to a cup of coffee. But you're starting to use money to love the people around you. And then not only that, not only do we use money well and value relationships, we also have the character trait of having open homes in the family of God. Our society places a high value on privacy and keeping things personal. So if you've got a private jet or a personal trainer, those are good things, yeah? We like our boundaries. What's the first thing that British people do when they go to the beach? They mark out their territory, don't they? It's like put the towels down. Some of you take a windbreak, which is essentially a portable wall with you, don't you? That's what you do. Just like keep the rest of the people out. That's the way that you do things. The Bible has a very different take on things. It says in Acts 2, They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Don't you love that? God has a very different value system to you and I. He, the value is on community. Think about it. The the God himself is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinity, three in one. You cannot reflect God just on your own. You have to do it with others. And there's a way, in, a way of us interacting with one another that is a, a much fuller picture of what God is like to the world around us than just solo Christians. Open homes change lives around us. And I've asked my wife, Ems, just to come and share a little bit of her experience of staying with some people in an open home. Can we welcome her up? Because she's amazing. Thank you. So, a little bit of background. Uh, I had come to Bedford at 18. Oh, frightened child. <laughs> uh, I'd come to Bedford at 18 to work uh, for a church on a gap year. I then decided to stay on and be involved in the church and help lead a youth group. When I turned 20, I was asked if I wanted to be discipled by Philippa. She was a leader in King's Arms and was responsible for the King's Arms project, our work with the homeless and disadvantaged. I really looked up to her, so immediately I said, yes. Uh, she then said, two things you'll need to do. I should have waited to hear those two things before I'd enthusiastically said yes. But she said, come and work on the project with me, as that's where I really spend my time. And the second thing is, you will need to have £1,000 saved up to support yourself as the team at that point weren't salaried. Big ask. 
And two things you should know about me then. First of all, I hadn't even felt God call me to work with the poor. I just knew I wanted to grow in leadership and become more like Jesus. But the second thing is, a thousand pounds was a lot of money to me. I had nothing saved up. I'd been helping to lead the youth group, and another couple in the church had kindly made space for me to work in their sandwich bar, which had covered my rent and outgoing expenditure. A couple in the church, Nick and Connie Gore, heard about me needing to raise this money, and one day came to me and said, we'd love you to live with us a year rent-free so that you can save up this money. It blew me away. It was costly for them, but they wanted to be generous with what they had. For Nick, it was costly. He was married to Connie, and they had three daughters. He was inviting another girl into the house. And for Connie, she had a small room that she was using as a craft room and a retreat room that was just some space with her in a really busy season, and she was prepared to give that up for me. I think at the time I knew she was being generous, but after being a mum of toddlers myself, I just realised how generous that was. They made me part of their family. We ate meals together. I did the washing up. I played with their three young children. I watched them resolve conflict. There wasn't that much, obviously. They insured me on their car, which I then wrote off by skidding on black ice, into the back of a taxi. And Nick cared for me and showed me how to deal with things when the taxi driver and his extended family turned up on the doorstep to sort things out. Oh, it was, yeah. They prayed for me when I was struggling with my temping work. They threw a 21st birthday party for me in their home. Every Friday was date night, which obviously I wasn't involved in. But um, other nights we spent uh, over board games and chocolate or watching a film together. We did a midweek group in the house together. Some of these very normal everyday activities. But my father died when I was small and I hadn't been part of a family like this. Seeing honest, healthy family dynamics brought healing. To be loved, to have people there for me who believed in me, encouraged me, had fun together, prayed for me, showed me that they cared and thought the best of me. For me, this has been life-changing. In my early 20s, I ended up through the project leading a discipleship house in a building which used to be a small hotel. Around 20 of us lived together and became family to each other. Without Nick and Connie, I don't think I'd have known what family had looked like. I became a mum, and some of my team became parents to those who hadn't known a stable upbringing, to those who had drug or alcohol addictions, to those with mental illnesses. Paul and I have had family, uh, people living with us, and we have four children who we're raising to love family. One family's love and reaching out to me has affected so many more people. Thanks, Emma. Brilliant. I just thought that helps illustrate what we're talking about so beautifully here. Now, of course, not everybody can do what Nick and Connie did. It might be that, you know, you do need your own space and you cannot have people with you uh, all the time. But maybe you could open up your home some of the time. I've got a friend who, like me, is a real introvert. He had his birthday party the other week and he wanted to spend it with people and connect with people. Um, so he sent out his birthday invite um, and it said the party will start at 8 p.m. and the party will finish at 10 p.m. It's the first time I've ever had a, an end point for a party, but as one introvert to another, I was deeply grateful. I looked at my watch for five past ten. Hey, time to go home. This has been good, but now there's an end to it. Maybe you could do something like that. It's okay to have an end time, but at least you're opening up your home to some extent to others. It might, of course, be that you don't actually own a home or you're in shared accommodation. Well, I would say to you then, be hospitable here. 
Be hospitable when the church gathers together. Um, Maybe uh, I'll pick up on some of what Sarah said. You know, uh, most of us tend to sit in the same seats each week, don't we? More or less. I know where some of you are going to sit each week. You are creatures of habit. Here's what you could do. You could sit in those same seats, but then start to look around you and say, well, who tends to sit near me? And which faces do I recognize that I could get to know? And who might be new around me that I could welcome? Maybe if you want to go the extra step, the extra mile, and this might be a stretch for some of you, you could even contemplate turning up early to church. I know that's, I know that's a shocker for some of you, and some of you would rather be martyred for your faith than actually turn up early to church. But what tends to happen is that people who are brand new here, they look on the website, see that the church service starts at 11.30, and they think to themselves, well, I don't want to miss it, so I'll get there early. They come in 11.25 and come and sit down here, all 10 of them look around and think, this isn't a very big church. Why have they got such a large building? They close their eyes two songs later, open their eyes from worship, look around and think, what the heck happened here? <laughs> what you could always do is you could come in early and say, greet them, say hi, get to know them a little bit. It's, I know it's a stretch, but that is possible for us. Why do I say that? The reason I say that is, because the bottom line, the message I want to get across this morning is that church isn't something that you attend. It's something that we are. Amen. This isn't a church. This, this is an old crayon factory that's been rather nicely done up. But that's what it is. You and me, we're the church. And at the risk of offending some people, Jesus didn't die for you to attend a 90-minute service on a Sunday. He died that you might have your sins forgiven live an abundant, radical life, and that you would know and live in community. He died for that. Maybe you don't feel like you need it, but perhaps you've got some gifts and talents and abilities that other people need from you. After all, the Bible doesn't say, give me my daily bread. It says, give us our daily bread. Let me ask you, who are you sharing your life with? Who's got a key to your door? Who's got a place at your table? Is it just all the usual familiar faces and everybody that looks just like you? Or are you open to others and reaching out to the people around you? Or is your life just this self-contained little silo? Because if it is, you're worth more than that. And God has got more for you than that. And God has got more for us than that. We've looked at many diverse, complex issues over this series. But the answer to all of them bottom line is that every single person needs Jesus and needs family, and we get to be that to one another. So rather than finish with some a big prayer ministry time, I wanted to finish slightly differently today. Um, I'm going to actually get us to talk to one another. I know that sounds scary for some of you, but I've given you some assistance. And what I'm going to do in a moment is I'm going to get some people who are brave enough from this side of the room to go, I know, all the way over to this side of the room. I know, I know. It's like ministering in the Congo or something like that. You know, you can do it. People from, some people who are brave enough from this side of the room to go over this side of the room, and the people in the middle can just go wild and go wherever you like. But I know that it could be a bit of social anxiety, so the ministry team will be on hand for that. But in order to help you more, I've given you three questions that I want you to help by asking one another. So here are the three questions I like to ask the people you come across. Number one, how long have you been at the King's Arms? Nice, easy question. Number two... What has God spoken to you this morning? And number three, this is really important. 
when you speak to that stranger, I want you to ask them, have you seen PJ's drill? Because it will be around somewhere. Is that all right? Can everybody do that? Stand to your feet. Let's move. Let's round. We'll put some music on. Let's spend some time, connect with one another. We'll get the kids in a bit. Find somebody new. Shake them by the hands. Let's be family together.